If you would, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1. We're going to start there in just a minute. But if you'll allow me, I wanted to mention just a couple of things, a couple of housekeeping kinds of things, and just a, a word of thanksgiving and encouragement. Um, yesterday was amazing. Uh, quite a few of you were out at the park for the, the community Bible study that we had there. Uh, I think there were six uh, folks who we'd never met before who were there with us, which was awesome to be able to talk about God's Word and encourage others. Uh, and Lord willing, we'll be able to have further uh, contact and build relationships there like other folks we've met in recent weeks and months. I hope we're all thinking about, man, we, we just got to be so concentrated on how can we reach our friends and neighbors to help them know the Lord and know the goodness of the Lord like we know. That's what we're here to do. That's why God doesn't just zap us straight to heaven after we get baptized. You know, He wants us here to be His light in the world. So thanks to everybody who's doing that in a variety of ways, whether it's activities we do like yesterday or in the work you're doing day to day in your life. Let's keep it going and try to uh, share the gift that God's given us with other people as well. Uh, on a somewhat related note, this coming weekend, uh, Friday night and Saturday, we're going to be having some Bible studies for young people. And so if you, uh, young people that you know that may be interested, invite them out. Um, also, there's some different things we're going to need to do logistically to take care of that. Different ones have been volunteering to help out. If you'd like to see how you could fit in to help with that, just let us know and we'll, uh, we'll put everybody in place to be able to participate in that. Some have asked if you're allowed to come if you're old. I think our rule is that's okay. No, it's for the kids, so you have to sit in the back quietly and well-behaved and not mess it up for the young people, all right? But if you got more questions, you can, uh, you can ask about that, and that'll be great. Uh, there's probably more that I should mention, but there's just a lot of good stuff going on. Let's keep it going. Let's keep it moving um, so we can help each other grow up to be like God wants to be, and we can help others as well. Uh, the 1960s were a transformative period in uh, American culture, really Western culture. We could just say world culture in generally. Uh, the 60s gave us the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix, MLK and JFK, Vietnam protests and the peace sign. This era also gave rise to what's uh, sometimes referred to as a sexual revolution. Probably as people in our generation would call it the sexual revolution, but that's not exactly true. There have been many revolutions in terms of people's sexuality throughout time. The idea in this period, which we experienced the, the products of down into our day today, was liberation. Let's liberate people from the standards and norms uh, that were accepted, that were the, uh, well, the standards and norms of the day. And the idea was, hey, to be liberated from ideas about sexuality that were held in common, this liberation is what will allow for real flourishing of human beings, for people to be well and whole and what they ought to be. I got to tell you, revolution for the purpose of human flourishing is right in line with what we believe as members of the kingdom of Christ. Uh, we want people to be freed from things that are wrong in this world and wrong with, them, with ourselves. Uh, we want people to flourish, to be whole, to be what God made us to be. But the so-called sexual revolution of Western, and maybe we could say to some extent, different corners of the globe, world culture in the 60s that we see today, really doesn't promote flourishing, at least not according uh, to God's will. Uh, and today, this, there's a lot of talk about freedom when it comes to sexual expression that's a descendant of this uh, revolution. Uh, free love, as it may have been called there, 
no boundaries for intercourse, whether that be in or outside of marriage. Who cares? Whatever. Whatever you feel like, you pursue that kind of relationship uh, with whomever that may be. Whether it's heterosexual relations or same-sex relations, you pursue it. You're free to. This is the revolution. Uh, Not only that, however you wish to define yourself or however you feel that you actually are, that's how you should identify and define yourself. However you are biologically born, that's not any kind of constraint. You're free from that. These are the kinds of ideas that you know are prevalent in our world. So what does God have to say about all this stuff? What's the will of the Lord? I want to propose to you that we are a part of and we need, well, we need to be part of. I don't know that we all are. But we need to take part in a counter-revolution. A sexual revolution based on the values of Jesus Christ. Because the truth is, more and more, what was revolution a few decades ago is pretty much standard now in our culture and in our world. We're revolutionaries. We're not trying to live out the standards of this world. Whenever Jesus came, He came as a revolutionary to revolutionize concepts of honesty and integrity, of kindness, of love for your neighbors, even your enemies. And yes, He came to be a revolutionary even when it came to notions of sexuality. So what I'd like to do is talk about four scriptural principles and then two practical scenarios. Four scriptural principles and two practical scenarios as we think about the sexual revolution of the kingdom of Christ. Are you there in Genesis 1? I'm going to be reading from the CSB. uh, Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, where we find our first principle that guides our understanding, our knowledge, and our practice when it comes to sexuality. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, this is when God created all things. Then God said, let us make man, or that is humanity, in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Principle number one. Principle number one when it comes to, I know, revolutionary ideas in our world, but the truth according to God about human sexuality. Principle number one is that God created human beings, male and female. God created human beings, male and female. Sexual identity, uh, sexual desire, sexual behaviors and relations, those are not things that that human beings, that sort of uh, uh, materialize over time within human beings. It's not something that sociologically human beings determine together and with each other. And these are kind of things that can be altered or manipulated per our interests or our desires or what we think is best. God created human beings. And the first and most fundamental thing, frankly, about every human being is their sex, whether they're male or female. It's interesting. That's all we know. You don't know what Adam and Eve looked like, do you? You don't know what they sounded like. You don't know anything other than God created humanity, male and female. This is how it all started. Actually, going down a little further in the story where we get a little more detail in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. I want to note with you something that's interesting here about how God created humanity. Genesis 2 and verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground. This is the male, the, the male Adam. Out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. Or if you're reading from an older translation, it may say he became a living soul. The reason I'm pointing this out is that sometimes we, uh, in, it's, in our culture, there's a, there's a notion that um, your real person 
is something separate from your biological uh, reality, right? Your anatomical, physio physiological reality is one thing. And then your true self is something that's psychologically derived. It's something separate from your bodily reality. By the way, I think a lot of times while in the world we talk about our psychology, really the Bible language for that is your spirituality in a lot of ways. They're not identical, but there's a lot of overlap here. All right, now here's the point. Here in Genesis 2 and verse 7, does it seem like that uh, Adam's soulish self, his true self, was something separate from his bodily reality? Or is it something that's actually intrinsically interwoven into the formation of his physiological self? You get what I'm saying? They're really intertwined. They're not something you can break apart. You see a similar kind of uh, notion in verse uh, 18. By the way, notice in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a, a helper corresponding to him. Someone who's similar, not exactly the same. We're not talking about all oh, this verse is very interesting. Lord willing, soon we're going to talk more about uh, marriage and what this passage says about marriage and males and females and how they relate to each other. We're not going to get into all that right now. But here's the point. God said it's not good for the male to be alone. So what am I going to do? Well, he could have just made the male able to, uh, I don't know, uh, whatever the opposite of fusion is. I should have looked up this word. Somebody knows what the word is, but uh, uh, fission, right? Fission, yeah, it's just a different, yeah, thank you. Uh, so he could have made human beings reproduce by fission, just split off and a new one is there. He could have done that. He could have done, and God could have made human beings produce and exist and be, multiply any way he wanted. But how did he do it? Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and, made her, uh, made, and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Here God creates distinctive, binary human beings. Uh, there's no fluidity here. This is a fixed property about human beings, that you're male or female. And that's in some way important. That intrinsic aspect of human nature is important for the complementary relationships between human beings, not only in marriage, but beyond that, in society generally. The complementary differences between human beings is in some way beneficial. And I know sometimes it doesn't seem like it. Again, we're talking revolutionary stuff here. This is not what the, the common idea is that's held. But if we believe that God is good, and if you're here and you don't believe that, uh, this is, I'm not going to prove that in this lesson, just to be real honest, or even try to. But there are a lot of things we could say to prove that and to, to argue that case. So if you really don't believe God is good, come talk to me and we can talk about that. But if you believe that God is good, then his design is for our good. God created human beings, male and female, distinctive, complementary, in a fixed order. You either have XX chromosomes or XY chromosomes to be scientific about it. This is the reality. And that bodily reality is human reality. It's not something that we can split apart our psychology from our physiology. And I'll just say one more thing before I pivot, because I imagine some of you, there's, if you're like me, you're pinging around different questions or concerns or kind of fears about this first principle that the Scripture teaches about human sexuality. So I want to try to, to move in that direction here in a second to address some of those things, at least what I think about in these things, maybe you as well. God is the sole authority over sexuality. He created it. He designed it. He's the one who put it into us. It's good. And also, we have no right or authorization 
to manipulate or to change or to go against that. Perhaps we'll say some more about that in just a minute. But like I said, maybe you're like me. You say, okay, but wait a second. I know that's what the Bible says, but we know some stuff. What about intersex persons? What about persons who uh, would identify themselves as asexual? What about people who have XX chromosomes or XY chromosomes, but when it comes to the way they relate to the world, the way they think about themselves, the way they uh, feel, in a very real, visceral, constant way, way, it doesn't match up with what's going on in their mind and in their heart. What about that? Are we just supposed to shrug and be like, well, sorry, or no, you're just tricking yourself. What about that? What about the person who um, is same-sex attracted? We see here that God made human beings to work together as male and female. What about a person who's same-sex attracted and not uh, attracted to a person of the opposite sex? What about that? What's, does the Bible account for that? It does. Principle number two. Principle number two. Some human beings do not naturally align to the standards and norms of their sex. Some human beings do not naturally align to the standards and norms of their sex. I'm going to give you an example that's all throughout the Bible, and then I want to show you something here in Genesis 3 uh, in the very next chapter that I think helps us with this. Uh, you ever notice when you're reading the Bible, there's this uh, class of persons called eunuchs. Eunuchs. They show up quite often. They show up in, uh, in the Old Covenant law. Isaiah 56, there's a whole prophecy about how this group of people are specially loved by God, specially welcomed and embraced by God and given value and worth by God. In Matthew chapter 19, in the midst of a larger discussion, Jesus said in Matthew 19 and verse 12, there are some people who are born as eunuchs, some people who are made eunuchs by men. And then Jesus continues with the discussion. Uh, in Acts chapter 8, one of the first uh, amazing individual convert conversion stories, maybe the first individual conversion story we ever see in the book of Acts, is of a man who is a eunuch who worked for Candace, uh, queen of Ethiopia. Okay, so what is, what's the deal with eunuchs? Okay, so eunuchs were people who either by birth or by a surgical procedure had their sex organs altered or in some way did not develop fully to where these men were able to produce children or frankly fully develop in uh, typical masculine uh, physiological and biological ways, all right? So the, the reason why these surgical procedures would be done, for instance, would be to prevent these men from being able to produce children so that these men could work in a palace, perhaps, among the, the royal court, and they couldn't assault the women. Of course, these are a lot of bad assumptions about these men. They would naturally do that. Anyway, the point is that might be why they would be, uh, this surgical procedure would be done. I want you to imagine being a man, a male. But... When you look at what other men typically do, you don't, that's not possible for you. Lots of kids and all this kind of, and you say, why? Well, it's not even like I just don't have a wife and therefore, I, but I, I literally cannot. It's impossible for me to, to do this. What would you feel about yourself? Matter of fact, do you think you'd be very embraced or welcomed? Or whether or not you'd be very embraced or welcomed by other men, would you imagine that you would want to be a part of relations with other men in terms of friendships and community and that sort of thing? Or is it possible that you might not even really feel much like a man or think of yourself much like a man? Now, here's my point. I'm not suggesting that eunuchs are the biblical version of a transgender person or something like that. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying there's a parallel here to a lot of the questions that we have in our day about, well, what about all these 
circumstances that people find themselves in in terms of their sexual identity or in terms of their sexual desire. There's a lot of parallels in what eunuchs would have gone through uh, and experienced in their life in the world. Why does that happen? Why is it that a eunuch would experience what he experienced, either by birth or by other people doing this to him? And then we come back to questions that we have. What's our explanation? Is there a biblical framework for the person, the intersex person, the transgender person? The, is, there, is there some sort of framework or explanation for this? Now, I've suggested a principle here that some human beings do not naturally align to the standards and norms of their sex. But, and we see this in eunuchs for sure. But where does that come from? Why is that? Look at me in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, starting in verse 14. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin against God. They rebel against Him. They disobey Him. And they bring sin into the world. And everything gets broken. Everything in the world gets broken. The world becomes cursed. And the result of the curse... Well, they're numerous. Look at some of the effects of the curse. First of all, in verses 14 and 15, God speaks to the serpent, who is Satan, at least a representation of Satan, or Satan himself, however you want to see that. It's Satan who has tempted uh, Eve and Adam to, to sin against God. And God condemns the serpent, but in that, in verse 15, He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Hostility between Satan and who's the offspring of the woman? The human race. All of humanity is in a spiritual battle with Satan. There are spiritual effects of the fall that impact every human being. Keep going into verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. What are we looking at here? Physiological effects. Before, I don't know. Was birth pleasant? Was it just something that happened? I don't really know what it was like before. But it says now that there's pain, there's intense pain. And we know that that's not even just in the moment when a child emerges from the womb into the world. But, and those of you who carry children could tell us plenty of stories about how there's actually great pain and difficulty through the entire process. There, there's physiological damage that's been done in the world because of sin that's broken the creation as it is. Actually, by the way, verse 19 talks about how the man would eat, by the bre by, eat bread by the sweat of his brow until you return to the ground. There's difficulty, there's challenge, there's struggle here. You keep on going in verse 17. Well, actually, let's do verse 16 before we do that. Notice what else it says about the woman. He says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. I'm not going to explain all this. If you want the explanation, I can show you uh, later on. But that word desire is not a good kind of desire. That's desire as if to possess, to grab, to entrap. And you kind of see that because the partner here is uh, your desire will be and he will rule over you. Conflict. There's sociological damage that's been done, certainly between men and women, between human beings generally, because we live in a fallen, broken world. Uh, look at the next verse, verse 17. He said to them, because you listen, uh, said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you, do not eat. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. What do we have here? Environmental impacts in all of creation. So we've got uh, spiritual effects of the curse and the fall. We've got physiological effects. We've got sociological impact. And we've got environmental impact because of sin that's entered the world and broken things. And then, of course, um, he says there in verse 19 at the end of it, the last line in this list of curses. You will return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to the dust. Death. And what has death done to us? 
all kinds of things. But I'll tell you one thing that it's done. It's really messed up our psychology. It's hard to live constantly in fear of death around people who are dealing with the fear of death. There are extreme psychological impacts in the world that we live. Do you see the point? Now, here's the thing. So some, some Christians want to say, listen, um, being transgender, that's just something that's made up and it's not real and nobody actually feels that way. Well, look, it's certainly a fact that a lot of these things are encouraged in a variety of ways, whether it's through media or education or a number of things that may plant the idea in some people's minds that otherwise would not have had it. All right, we need to acknowledge that. There are many people who have said as much who have uh, uh, gone through gender reassignment surgeries or various things of that nature. Okay, so let's acknowledge that. That's true. That's true. Same goes for any number of things. Uh, free, free love, sex outside of marriage, or uh, same-sex attraction. Maybe some of these things are encouraged by, by other influences. But I'll say this, Christian, I don't think you need to preoccupy yourself with arguing the case. No, it's never something that... Look at all the stuff that's going on in the world. You want to tell me it's impossible that somebody could be born with some sort of desire that doesn't align with their sex? You want to tell me it's impossible because of the broken, fallen world we live in? That it's impossible that somebody could be born with some sort of dysphoria about their body and their true self and how to deal with that and how to cope with that? You think that's impossible? I don't think so. Right here in Genesis 3, there are all kinds of causes and reasons for any number of complications of life in this world, and that includes our sexuality. And might I add right here, we're talking about sexuality today because recently we've been looking at some of Jesus' teachings on that in the Sermon on the Mount. But the things I'm saying apply to everything. Some of us have an innate problem with anger. You know that? Some of you, when you were born, little kids, somebody said, Ooh, what's wrong with him? Got a little anger problem. Some of us have this, I don't know where it came from, where, what happened, but I just have an issue with jealousy or lying or all these different things. Now, where did that come from? I don't know. I know, well, actually, I do know. It came from the fact that every one of us was produced within and in some ways produced by a fallen world, a broken world. Look at what Romans chapter 8 has to say about this. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. Romans 8 and verse 18. The scripture says this, For I consider that the sufferings, sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation, notice how global that is. Everything, the creation, eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For, why? Why, are we looking, why is the whole creation looking forward to what's going to happen with us? Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. There's an emptiness. There's a lostness. There's a brokenness about this creation. Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. Isn't that terrible? Bondage, that sounds bad enough. Decay, that's another bad thing. Do you see that image? The bondage to decay. The creation we live in, the creation that we are a part of, frankly, and that we occupy, is something that's decaying, degrading, that is messed up. Keep going in the text. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Here he latches on to this notion of how even bringing new life into the world is a painful experience, not a beautiful experience. He says the whole creation experiences that same kind of pain, that same kind of groaning, that same kind of difficulty, even up until now. 
Not only that, he says, it's not just them. Out the it, the creation, everything else. Verse 23 says, not only that, but we ourselves, who have the, first, the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption the redemption of our bodies. Do you see what this text is saying? This lines right up with Genesis 3. The creation is messed up. So this is why we're, we're not surprised. We mourn. Just as every aspect of living in a cursed world, we mourn over that. But it's not a surprise to us that some human beings do not naturally align to the standards and norms of their sex. Jesus said so. Jesus said this is how it is. The eunuch does not naturally align to all the things that might be thought of as male or masculine. And in all these other expressions, uh, questions and expressions of sexuality that we're talking about and thinking about in our culture, in our world, it's not a surprise to us. It's because we live in a fallen world. It's because we live in a broken world. So yes, there are complications in every arena of life, including our sexuality. All right, principle number three. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Revolutionary thinking. We're not thinking like the world thinks. We're thinking like Christ came to teach us to think according to the scriptures. Principle number one, God created human beings, male and female. He's the authority over what we are, who we are, and how we behave. Principle number two, some human beings do not naturally align to the standards and norms of their sex. Principle number three, every human being must behave in accordance with the rules that God has laid down for their sex. Every human being must behave in accordance with the rules that God has laid down for their sex. Uh, Let's say I have desire for someone who's not my spouse. Maybe I'm not married, maybe I am married. And I'm a woman and I just have all this desire for this man. Does that desire authorize me to go have intercourse with that man or to have any kind of sexual contact with that man? It doesn't. That desire may be intensely strong. It may feel like the only right thing. And there's no question about it. I know this is what... I'm not authorized to do that. God has not given me permission to do that. matter of fact, He specifically prohibited me from doing that. And no matter what my desires may be, I have to behave in accordance with the rules that God has laid down for me as a woman, human being. I have to obey that. Of course, we could reverse the scenario for a man. You get the point. This is the same with the person who has same-sex attraction. I still have to behave in accordance with God's rules for how I live as a human being. I can't pursue those. This is an important place where I need to take a little time out and say something that is uh, something that's true in Scripture. You can read a passage like James 1 and see this, and actually any number of passages that talk about sin. Desires are not the same as sins. Desires are not the same as sins. Do you have a desire to be envious sometimes? Do you have a desire to be uh, jealous sometimes? Do you have a desire to punch somebody in the face when you're on the train sometimes? Do you have a desire to lie sometimes? You get the point, right? Did you commit sin whenever you did that? The scriptures say no, you did not. Desire gives birth to sin, and so we need to be care- we need to be mindful of our desires and fight against sinful desires, but it is not the same thing, you understand? It's not the same thing. The thing that gives birth to something is not the same as the thing. I don't know if that sentence made sense, but y'all get where I'm coming from, right? Okay? So I just want to say that out loud because I think this is something that's gotten really twisted. There are a lot of people who, for instance, are same-sex attracted. And because of the way we as Christians talk about this, and shame on me, shame on us for any time we do this, we can 
wrongly and incorrectly burden people and overburden people with a sense of there's something wrong with you. You have a bad desire. Well, so do I. So do you. That's the whole deal. That's why we're all in trouble. That's why we all need Christ, okay? So desires are not the same as behaviors. Desires are not the same as sins, choices that we make, all right? Um, But we must, regardless of our desires, be sure to behave in accordance with God's will for our lives. And I guess this is the trick. Some people say, ah, you have bad desires, you're bad, lost cause. Perhaps others would say, your desires, they're good, you're good, whatever. Whoa, 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 whoa. Probably a lot of my desires are not good, remember? We live in a fallen, broken world. And so there's a lot of things about us that are not naturally good. And we don't need to assume that just because it's coming from me means that it's a good thing or a good idea. i got to come back to the Lord and check in with Him. Every human being must behave in accordance with God's rules for their sex. Um, of course, this is, this is directly relevant for questions about, okay, I, I'm physiologically male or female, but I believe my gender is something different. And of course, there's a, a broad spectrum of, of expression of who I really am, which again, we've said is really not uh, how human beings work, but that's the way we're talking here. So um, does the Bible address that? Well, yeah, actually, in a way. Uh, as far as I know, there were no gender reassignment surgeries and that sort of thing. I don't know if the technology was possible during biblical times. Maybe it was certain times. We don't know. Uh, but we don't have any reason to think that it was. However, the Bible does give specific prohibition about human beings behaving in ways or presenting themselves to others or conducting themselves socially in a way that's opposite to their sex. For instance, Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. There the Lord condemns the practice of a man or woman uh, dressing themselves, presenting themselves as the opposite sex. That's an abomination, God says. Uh, And the idea would be that for whatever reason, you may want to present yourself as something different than what you actually are that's not allowed. In a slightly different way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there the scripture says that whenever men and women pray or prophesy, that they're supposed to adorn themselves in specific ways. Uh, and they were not, they were fixed ways. Men are to be uh, adorned themselves in this way, women in that way. We can talk about all that if you want to, but that's not the point. My point here is that men and women, it was wrong for men and women to present themselves or to align themselves in a way that would be more like uh, the opposite sex. Whatever your sex is, you have to behave in accordance with the rules that God has laid down for you. See the point? 1 Corinthians 7 is a passage that, once again, it's kind of like the eunuchs thing. It's not uh, identical, but it's a parallel concept that I think is helpful for us. Because someone may say, well, but this, this goes against every inclination, every thought, every feeling, everything that feels so real to me, what you're saying goes against all that. Uh, and I would like to make some sort of change to my physical person or make some sort of change generally to quell these urges, desires, uh, uh, questions, fears, problems that I have inside myself. Why is that so wrong? In 1 Corinthians 7, the issue is whether or not people should be circumcised, which I know for us is a very religious thing, but let's just talk about what circumcision is. Circumcision is a surgical procedure on your sex organs. That's what circumcision is. Circumcision is is a surgical procedure on your sex organs in order to align yourself socially or in some way even existentially. Here's what I am now because I've had this procedure done. 
I relate to the world differently now because I've had this procedure done. You see the point, right? Now, it was a religious, spiritual connotation, but that's what it is. And you can see the parallel. I want you to listen to what's said here. In verse, uh, starting in verse 19. Circumcision does not matter, and uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's commands is what matters. Let each of you remain as you were called. Do you hear what he says? All those changes I might undergo to try to fulfill myself, people here doing that in a very real way, similar to what we might hear about and think about today, or maybe even ourselves feel from time to time. That stuff will not matter, he says. That won't fix anything. That won't correct anything. What will is keeping God's commands. Principle number three, every human being must behave in accordance with the rules that God has laid down for their sex. All right, one more. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6. And then I want to talk about a couple of practical scenarios. Principle number one, not the thoughts of our world. Once again, we're thinking like revolutionaries. This is different stuff as we're living in the kingdom of Christ. Principle number one, God created human beings, male and female. Principle number two, some human beings do not naturally align to the standards and norms of their sex. Principle number three, every human being must behave in accordance with the rules that God has laid down for their sex. Principle number four, our truest identity is in Christ and not in anything else. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And such were some of you. What are you? What's your deal? Honestly, man, I'm a swindler. I just steal from folks. Really? That's who you are? Yep, that's my identity. What are you all about? I'm all about the money. Um, frankly, you might as well just call me greed because that's who I am. That's my identity. What about you? Well, I'm a, whatever words we want to use that are nice, Casanova, whatever, a man who's running around just having sex with as many women as possible. That's who I am. That's true. That's been true for all of us at some point. We were something. We were defined by some sort of pursuit that was of this world. And frankly, too many of them sinful things of this world. Such were some of you. But verse 11. But, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Male or female, Galatians chapter 3 says, that's, look, it's a real thing, but when you're in Christ... It's not really a big thing. Heterosexually attracted or same-sex attracted, are you keeping the commandments of God? Then those things really don't define you. There's no such thing as a, a gay Christian or a trans Christian. Just as much as there's no such thing as an angry Christian or a jealous Christian. We're just Christians. We've been taken out of our sin and out of this world, and we've been devoted to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. And by the way, I might add that this passage shows very clearly that the gospel is for all. 
all people, whatever your desires, whatever your temptations, whatever your situation. And that means that the gospel confronts all with whatever desires, temptations, feelings, thoughts, beliefs we have with the world. The gospel confronts us and says, nope, sorry, you got to go away from that. You can't keep on living that way for every one of us, wherever we're coming from, whatever we are. The gospel comforts all. It tells us you can be saved. You can be made right. You can have hope beyond this body, beyond this world. The gospel is for all. That's the truest thing about us. All right. So there's your biblical principles when it comes to sexuality. There's probably more we can say, but at least those four. How do we behave? We're revolutionaries living in a world that doesn't agree with the things that God has to say about human sexuality. So how are we supposed to behave? I want to talk about two scenarios. First scenario is other people. I got somebody in my life and, uh, and, and they're, they're same-sex attracted. I know about this, but they're going beyond that. I mean, they're, they're in a relationship, a same-sex relationship. They've invited me to uh, the celebration of their, their union with this person. Um, they talk to me about their relationship. We're good friends. I care about them. We talk about the Lord even. What am I supposed to do? I got a coworker who tells me, uh, you know, they've been telling me that they uh, are a transgender person. They've asked me to identify them uh, opposite to their reality, opposite to their sex. Um, and actually beyond that, they're talking to me about having a surgical procedure done to, to carry out this perspective on themselves and the way they feel about themselves. What am I supposed to do about that? How am I supposed to interact about with that? I want to remind you some of the revolutionary things Jesus had to say about how we interact with the world. First of all, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Uh, As followers of Jesus, with everybody, no matter what the issue is, uh, we're to be gracious and kind. Uh, we're to be careful with our speech, seasoned with salt, as grace always, as Colossians 4 says. Uh, we care about people, which means we're careful listeners. We want to know. Tell me more about where you're coming from. Tell me more about what you think about this. Tell me more about just what you're going through. And uh, I want to hear. I want to listen. I want to know because I'm a meek and merciful person, just like Jesus. I'm mild, and I want to approach you in that kind of manner. Uh, We don't think about things like gender dysphoria or same-sex relations. We don't think about that as uh, a socio-political issue. We don't think about that as, oh, we just think about it in terms of this human being, my neighbor, who I love, because I know what the chief revolutionary said. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful. At the same time, we remember that he said, blessed are you when men persecute you and falsely say all kinds of kinds of evil against you because of me so they spoke about the prophets who would speak God's truth and then he went on to say you are the light of the world you're the salt of the earth so while we're meek and merciful we also understand that we stand with God on all matters on all matters lying uh, somebody cheating on their spouse anger whatever and yeah issues about sexuality we stand with God even whenever people around us think that uh, what we're doing is something harmful to them, uh, even whenever individuals around us uh, think that we're backward and ignorant, we're with the Lord. And we know that's different, but that's, that's what we're standing on, no matter what it is. 
All right, so simply put, whenever we interact with people, I'm going to give you what I think are two rules, and there's probably more that you could say, but two rules whenever I'm interacting with other people on these matters. Number one, be sure to express sincere care for every person. Just like you would want expressed to you, whatever, and just like, and not like you would, like you do. You want people to care about you, whatever your problems are. You got anger issues, you got lying issues, you got greed issues, uh, you got problems with pornography. You want people to care about you as a human being. Treat those people the same way. Ex- be sure to, ex- and I'm saying this carefully, be sure to express sincere care. Uh, that means be mindful of how this person receives treatment from other Christians. And you don't, you don't be like that. By the way, maybe those other Christians didn't mean to do that. But you be sure to let somebody know. Whenever that woman came to Jesus who had the flow of blood and was so damaged, after the healing, Jesus had her tell the, her whole story so that at the end he could say to her, go in peace. You get what I'm saying? We want to take actions that express sincere care for every person. Meek and merciful. At the same time, a second rule for how we interact with persons around us in the world, our neighbors, our friends, our family members, even our brethren, by the way, on these matters, we must avoid doing anything that would indicate support or endorsement for behaviors that go against God's will. So I want to be sure to express sincere care for a person while at the same time I must avoid, refrain from, absolutely not do anything that would indicate endorsement or support of choices that person may be making that goes against God's will. You are going to make some people angry if you really love your neighbors. All right? You understand what I'm saying? Whenever people want you to identify them as something opposite than what God made them, that is not good for them. That's what they want. But that's not good for them. And we've seen from Scripture that God gives no framework for us doing that. We can't endorse or support that. Right? Whenever someone's entering into any kind of relationship, if somebody said, hey man, I'm planning on cheating on my wife this weekend, how would you respond to that? I hope you would do absolutely nothing that would even give a neutral response that would indicate that, oh, that's okay, or that's fine. Same applies to all these issues that we've been talking about today. Avoid doing anything that would indicate endorsement or support of behaviors uh, that go against God's will. And I want to I just acknowledge something right here. Uh, for many of you, you are constantly treading on dangerous ground at your workplace, in your friendships, in your relationships. I know especially some of you in your workplaces. Some of these things are, if not borderline, explicitly mandated that you support and endorse these things. And I want to say I pray for you. And I know some of us have had conversations about these things. And we need to keep having conversations about how to make sure that we're applying the principles, the rules that Jesus has given us. And I guess I'll just say this. In every arena of life, in every time throughout history, every revolution is complicated. Every revolution uh, has some, some difficulties and some sacrifices that have to be made. And we have to understand that we are a part of Christ's revolution of bringing salvation and flourishing to the human race. And that's going to be difficult for us sometimes. Don't back off of it. Don't be intimidated by what the world may tell you to do. Stick with what the Lord says. All right, so that's the scenario of dealing with others. I want to end with this. What about myself? I have a male body, but I don't feel like I'm a man. Uh, I'm a female. Whenever I'm sexually drawn or sexually attracted to somebody, it's another female. It's not another man. 
And I, as far as I know, that's from the very first day I entered planet Earth. I can't remember a time whenever I was drawn to What am I supposed to do about this? What am I supposed to think about this? Well, a couple quick things. Don't, like, like all of us, don't be controlled by your feelings. Remember, we live in a fallen world. Don't assume your feelings are correct or trustworthy. Also, don't turn to worldly sources for answers. Uh, YouTube and podcasts are amazing, but not for trying to figure out important stuff, things that we actually need. We need to be turning back to God and what He has to say about these things. And I'll say this, don't keep it a secret. There's no room for shame here, y'all. There's no room for it, all right? There's no room for that. We love each other. We're all a little bit messed up. Some of us a lot messed up. Some of y'all are good. Some of us are not. Don't keep it a secret, whatever it is. And again, this applies to every kind of sin and temptation and desire and thing we're dealing with. Don't keep it a secret. Let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. Let people love you, support you, encourage you in whatever it is that you're going through in your life. And remember what Jesus said. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Think people ever hunger and thirst for happy relations that they can't imagine? Think people ever hunger and thirst to feel good about looking at their body in the mirror in the morning when they feel that it's not their true self? Think people ever hunger and thirst for something? Yeah. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The righteousness that's found in Him for they shall be satisfied. The world we live in says, hey, be true to yourself. Follow your feelings. You know, do whatever. Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not the path to flourishing. That's not the path to liberation. Jesus' revolution is led by these words. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up the cross. Put to death your old self and follow me. Follow me. That's where satisfaction comes from. That's where fullness comes from. That's where liberation comes from is when we follow Jesus. And whatever I may do to manipulate my body or to pursue relations, to be able to love myself or to have someone love me in the way that I wish to be loved, it's nothing compared. It will not satisfy. It will not end up in a happy ending like the love of God. The God who loved us so much that He made us in His image. The God who loved us so much that even in the midst of our sin, He kept on being patient and working out a plan to bring us back. The God who loved us so much that He sent His only Son to die for us. You'll never love yourself as much as God could love you. I don't care what you do. You'll never be loved by another person like God loves you. I don't care who you find or how many of them you find. You'll never be loved like that. And that's the greatest reality we experience. Not the things that we experience in this world, but that we have the love of the Lord in our life. We need to remember that's our true identity. That's who we truly are. You're an image bearer of God. You're a sinner like the rest of us. Loved by God, just like the rest of us. Looking forward to the hope of what we read a few minutes ago in Romans chapter 8 and verse 23. And I want to read this uh, in closing. Romans 8 and verse 23 tells us that this revolution we're we're a part of is headed for redemption. They may have promised freedom in the 60s, and we may promise freedom to each other today with all these things we do in the world. But the real freedom is what Jesus is bringing to us one day. Not only that, Romans 8, 23, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies to be set free as sons of God. Our Father in heaven, we live in a a confusing world as it's always been. Please help us. Please guide us. Please give us wisdom. Give us your love so that we can endure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.